Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the November 2016 podcast. I hope you all had an amazing Thanksgiving. I know Lydia and I did. We had uh, Miles back in town and just enjoyed some amazing good times with friends and family and some really good cooking. I have to say, having a hobby in this crazy world of making movies, storytelling, filmmaking, is, is a very important part of keeping a sane mind and uh, really kind of keeping a, a creative mind, keeping it always on the ready, focused. And cooking is my kind of escape away from the business. It doesn't require me to do anything that I normally do in uh, with making movies. So I really enjoy that element because it really just takes me away and, and cooking is very creative as well. So I love that whole process. And I have to say that, you know, my mom was not only a sixth grade teacher, she was also, she ran her own catering business. So I was her sous chef a lot while I was farming, helping my dad. I was also cooking with her for all her major events and parties and unions meetings and all this kind of good stuff. All right. Well, let's get this party started, everyone. And I have a mixed bag, a potpourri of items. I kind of went through a lot of the questions over a couple days and really looked for ones that maybe we hadn't really addressed before or were were not so much time sensitive, but really kind of a, a, a good learning experience for everyone. So let's Let's go for it. All right. First question. Hi, Shane. First off, hands down the inner circle rocks. Well, thank you. Uh, I will voice all your kudos to my team because this is an amazing team behind everything we create. So uh, I will push that back to them. Thank you and and Lydia for your time and dedication. Well, you're very welcome. It, it's a love. It's a passion. It's something that we absolutely enjoy doing and we really appreciate appreciate all your kind words. You talk about camera tests a lot and how important they are 
in terms of understanding the camera and how it works. You mentioned testing the camera to extremes in terms of underexposure and overexposure, as well as color quality. What else do you look for when testing a camera? What is your basic step or guidelines when testing a camera? I got a new Blackmagic Ursa Mini and want to do a controlled test on the camera capabilities, but don't know where to really start. Thanks for your time. Kenneth Keeler. Well, one of the reasons I uh, picked this question is camera tests are so important for you to really understand not only the camera's soul, your sensor's soul, but also for getting great ideas on, you know, stuff that by testing different cameras, you see the look of different cameras, and then you can immediately apply that to, you know, your stories, how it can tell a story a little differently by selecting this digital emulsion or that digital emulsion. And that's what I always call these camera sensors is they're a digital emulsion. They react differently. The Alexa looks different than the Dragon, the Weapon, and the Black Magic Ursa Mini looks different than the Sony A7S or the FS7, so or the Panasonic GH4. So all these cameras have a unique soul and a unique digital emulsion. And I think it's our job as cinematographers, as filmmakers, is to really figure out what the soul of this sensor is. And you can really truly only do that by doing camera tests. So the first thing I'm looking for is the camera's soul. What does the sensor do? What is it like? What does that sensor feel like? You know, what, what's its uh, unique abilities? What, what can it do? What can it do? And once you really find that what it can do and what it can't do, then you exploit what it can do. I look back at Need for Speed where I mixed three or four different formats. Let's see. I, I shot, yeah, four different. I shot with the C500 in 4K RAW. I shot with the Aria Alexa in 2.3K RAW. I shot with the 1DC, Canon 1DC and 4K motion JPEGs. And then I shot with the GoPros in 2.7K. So I had a mixed bag of all these different sensors and I needed them to be able to play nicely together and all blend seamlessly. Well, the reason I used all those different cameras is because each camera had a very unique ability that the other cameras didn't. And I exploited that unique ability. So by using Let's take the C500, for example. That camera energizes light. And I knew I was going to have a ton of night interiors, night exteriors, where I couldn't light a lot. And that camera just sees into the night like you cannot believe. So I knew that was going to be its strongest point. The Alexa was tested, true, and tried for day exteriors. The overexposure rolls off beautifully. It's got great skin tones. You know, the camera just is a war horse. And I just thought it was going to be absolutely perfect 
perfect for all my day exterior work. The Canon 1DC was a very small compact camera that could that I could hide in over the shoulders and crash cameras, put them in these Pelican cases so I could just land on top of them, flip them over, blow them up, you know, whatever it was, we were able to put those in very dangerous situations as well as, you know, really beautiful composed angles within the car and and really immersed you in the action as well as our helmet cam, which was the 1DC. And the director, Scotty Waugh, really loved this helmet cam. He really wanted it to be immersive. He wanted to be able to have you feel like you're in the driver's seat. You see your hands on the wheel and you look left and right and you see what's coming at you and what's happening. So this was something that was very important. And then the GoPros were that expendable camera that you could literally just put anywhere and and just bash into and and explode and my god we lit them on fire so all these things were all happening and and we just you know blended these and now i blended the cameras by using a process called cinefilm it's a post-process where it goes through and takes all the aliasing and artifacting and, and rolling shutter elements and everything out of the image. And then it goes back through and layers grain over the whole image after it's taken out all of its noise and artifacts and aliasing. And by doing that, it really has a very, very powerful feel based on that because the the GoPro looks like it's the C500 and the C500 looks like it's the Aria Alexa and the Aria Alexa looks like it's the 1DC. So that was the whole idea of that. All right, I've completely wandered off the path and getting back to the tests. So your first question was, what else do you look for when testing a camera? So first I said we, we're looking for the soul of the camera, what its, what its sensor delivers, what its unique qualities, what are its best assets, and then exploiting them. So that's what, you, what I'm looking for first. What is your basic step or guidelines when testing a camera? Okay, the basic steps and guidelines is I do a series of tests, and I'll uh, kind of spell them out for you. The first thing I do is a day ISO noise test. And the reason I do day is because I want to see the noise out in the middle of a day because at night you can use the you can use shadow to hide a lot of that noise. So with day ISO noise tests, you really see what what kind of noise is out there and how prevalent it is. So I do that right off the bat. And depending on how many ISO ranges your camera has will be how many you're going to do. For your Ursa Mini, you have 200, 400, 800, and 1600. That's easy. Uh, for all the other cameras, you have so many, many increments of thirds of a stop. The Dragon is one that goes all the way up to 20,000. So I tested all those as well because I want to see its breaking point. You want to see where it really falls apart. And you also want to push it to the absolute limit and then try to bring it back. And that's what tests all about. You push it 
and then pull it. And it's something that's done in film processing as well. You overexpose to be able to pull back. So what I'm trying to do is bring that ISO up to a level, say 2000 or 3200 on a, uh, on a weapon. And then, and I'm looking at the noise, I'm seeing it on my Flanders DM250. I'm seeing that it's crawling. But then when we take it into DaVinci and start to play with it, does the noise go away? And is it a cool noise? Is it a great texture that looks unique? And these are the things that you find when testing. Because if you don't bring it back, then it's just a test. But if you try to bring it back and do something with it and see how grainy it actually is, or let's say noisy, I keep on saying grain, it's my film days, but you see how noisy that camera is at that high ISO, and then you bring it back. I mean, you know what reminds me of this is the Nick. Steven Soderbergh loves the red and he loves shooting at high ISOs and underexposing the shit out of it. And the Nick has a very kind of unique look because of that noise level. It's like a bed, a bed of noise throughout the whole the whole show. And it really creates a really nice mood for that series. And this is good storytelling. You're using the ability to go in there with candlelight, going there with turn of the century, gaslighting and the invention of electricity. And you're going in and and using a high ISO with underexposing it and creating that bed of textured noise that really kind of makes it feel raw and makes it feel like, you know, this is like medieval medicine. I mean, this was the turn of the century. They were figuring stuff out. So I think that's a really good example of, again, doing tests and then bringing them back and seeing what that noise is and 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 if there's a really interesting look in it. The next thing I do is a backlight test. And this is in the order that I do them. So you can kind of see I'm already starting to generate from the direction of the sun. So the sun's usually low in the morning. So for day ISO, I'm hitting them with, with a, uh, a nice low light. There's more shadows in the, uh, in the daytime in that low light. So you're getting the a little darker, but the shadows are obviously lit. They're not as jet black as it would be at nighttime. So you're able to see that noise and you go right into a backlight test because the sun is now up out of the, the flaring of your lens. And now you go for backlight and you want to see how the camera is able to balance without any fill at all. And this is the thing that the Red and the Alexa do very well. They balance day exteriors so nicely where you really truly don't have to put any fill in there at all. You can balance the background. You can hold the sky. You can hold the detail on their uh, on their head being backlit. And as long as you don't have like a milky, mushy white sky, you're usually holding the sky detail as well. But there's some cameras like the C500 where that doesn't happen. It clips out. You can't balance it. So you need to fill it 
as well as sometimes you need to net the sun down to be able to get it balanced so it just doesn't clip so quickly. The C500 sees into the night beautifully, but clips very quickly. And when you see our Ursa Mini tests that we're going to be releasing very soon, probably uh, mid-December, you'll see that this camera clips out fairly quickly as well. So it, and that's an inherent quality of, of these, of these sensors that are in this price range. You know, they just, they, I, I describe the Alexa and the red, their clip factor is like walking down a hill, a nice rounded hill. The Ursa Mini and the GoPro and the C500 and those cameras are like walking and then you just fall off a cliff. There's not much rounding going on with the uh, overexposure and the clip factor. Okay, so we've done our backlight test and you want to do it with fill and without fill. So you want to, again, do because you want to learn something here, right? You're trying to learn what it's going to take to make this camera look good. Not just break it. Okay, breaking is cool. We want to always break. But we also want to learn what it's going to take to make it look good. So in a backlight test, you do it without any fill and you see if you can balance it. And you just let it expose where you, what I do is I expose it where I would want the skin tone to be, right? Without any fill. And then I see if the backlight holds and the sheen off the street or, or the hot sky. If it doesn't hold, then I start to underexpose the face, and I underexpose in like half stop increments and I'll underexpose, underexpose to the point where I can hold all the detail in like, say, Monette's blonde backlit hair, as well as the sheen off of the, the parking lot. And once I get it there where I hold all the detail and obviously her face is not at the IRE value that I want, but it's underexposed. Then I see when I get in DaVinci, if I can balance it, if I can hold the highlights and then bring up her face. And if I can, then I have really kind of figured that camera out in a backlight scenario. I know I can underexpose the face I don't have to get that high IRE value. I can underexpose it. And then in the post process, I can bring it back and make it look stunning. Now, the same thing is I do. I also, you know, use fill after that. So I've, I've done my underexposure where I'm bringing the, the skin tone down to be able to hold the highlights and everything. Then I try to make it look good with some lighting. So I bring in a big, you know, six by six or eight by eight or 12 by 12 bounce. I bounce the sun into that white. I bring the skin tone up to my 45 to 55 IRE value where I really like it or even 50 to 60 IRE, depending on what kind of day and what the mood is. And then out of that, I see with that fill how it's holding the backlight and, and the extremes there, because now we've evened it out a little bit and we've filled it in and made it look better by going with this uh, added fill. And now you're looking at how you can really finesse this camera. So you learn three steps in backlight. First, is no lighting at all. Can it hold the, the IRE value that you would like, whether it's 45 to 55 in the skin tone and hold the highlights in the background and hold the highlights on their head? Second 
you then, if the camera could not do that, then you go for underexposing the skin tone and be able to get it so nothing is clipping in the background. And then in the post-process, you see if you can bring that back. You can balance the image and bring the skin tone levels up to the IRE value that you love and balance the image out and still hold all the highlights. And the third is where you get in there and you really uh, fill it with some nice bounce light and you try to balance the image on the digital sensor instead of having to try and do this in the post process. These are the three things that you learn from backlight. Now, the next thing you're gonna do is IR pollution testing. And now if you stick to your schedule, the sun is about at 11.30 or 12 o'clock, which is perfect IR testing because you want as much IR pollution as possible so you can really see what this camera's problems are. And you just start with straight ND and uh, you just slowly work your way up. You start clean and then you go 3, 6, 9, 1.2, 1.5, 1.8, 2.1. And what you always wanna do is once you've done that, you wanna go in your post process and you wanna be looking at the clean versus the three, clean versus the six, clean versus the nine, and you can slowly start to see when that IR pollution comes in and where you cannot combat it. And when I say combat it, it's the bringing it back, right? So you're trying to learn something here. You break the camera by, you know, using like the Blackmagic Ursa Mini is a perfect example with this. After about 0.9, the IR pollution starts to take over and it becomes fairly difficult for you to balance the image and keep blues blue, greens green, and blacks black. Those things all, the greens start to brown out, the blues start to turn purple, and the skin tone becomes brown. So by testing this and then trying to bring it back and color grade it, you can see where the camera breaks and where you really need to use IR filtration, whether it's you know, Tiffin IRs or whether it's True NDs or Firecrest NDs or the new Tiffin Natural NDs that are coming out. I've been working on these fairly uh, aggressively, uh, helping Tiffin test these and we've got them in the right pocket. And they, what they do compared to the True NDs is the first thing is the the filter is on the inside of the glass, so you don't scratch it to touch, which happens with a true ND. And it keeps the skin really looking good, where the true ND tends to add some cyan to the skin tone which is, you know, nothing that you can't dial out. But again, I'm, you know, I always try to do it as much in camera as possible. And we're working towards the natural NDs to be very, very close to just being able to do it in camera and not have to go in there and spin the cyan out or spin the magenta out. And so this is where we're, we're what we're working towards. But this, um, this is a really cool, this IR pollution is a great test because you really start to understand where the camera breaks and then you see how far you can push it without using expensive IR filtration 
to that you can still balance it and suck that brown, you know, red, purple color out of your blacks and keep all the colors looking normal. Now, when you're doing these tests, you want to always have color charts and grayscales. And I use the spider color checker. I bought two of them so I can have a color chart with the full color spectrum, not only your primaries, but also the secondaries. And then I have another spider checker that I just put two gray cards on. And you want to also look at how you angle them. You don't want the black frame around the, the spider checker to sheen. If it sheens, then you know that it is, that it's going to be sheening the colors and the colors will not be a true rendition. So you want to angle it towards your key light and then you just back it off a little bit so it doesn't sheen by, you know, spinning the angle slightly away from the key light. And that's how I, you know, hone in the gray card. And that's how you can keep all your exposures consistent. Skin tones are going to change. The way it falls onto a face is going to change. It's very, very difficult for you to match an IRE value to the the two or three points with a face. Because like I said, the, the face is an uneven surface. So you put the gray card in there, angled to the sun, then angled just slightly away so it doesn't sheen the gray card and the black surface around the gray card. And then you dial that into the IRE value that you want. If her skin wants to be 45 to 55, then you, then you set it up to, once you get that 45 to 55 on her skin, then you dial the gray card, the IRE value up or down to get the gray card to then gray out on your your Flander Scientific. And then once that does, then my God, it's like, bam, you throw a filter in, you can make sure that it's still gray because a lot of these filters, they're not a perfect stop. The true NDs were dead on, but some of the IRND filtration uh, is not a full stop. So you always have to be manicuring that as well as the sunlight changes. Our last Ursa mini test we did, we were in and out of the sun. So it was constantly going up and down. And by having that gray card there, I was able to lock the gray card in perfectly gray as the, the sun went up and down. And when I say perfectly gray, it's because on the Flanders, you're selecting that IRE value to gray out. So that's all these different colors going from black, blue, cyan, you know, green, pea green, then you know, it goes into gray and then it goes in a uh, brighter green, more fluorescent green. Then it goes into uh, yellow. Then it goes into orange and then it goes into white. And that's your whole spectrum on the Flanders Scientific. So you can actually move the gray area. So I'm able to move my IRE values up and down. And you want to make sure if you're you're into this, Testing is very important and requires these type of monitors because testing is not creative. Testing is not a dash of this and a pinch of that. It is methodical, balls, accurate.
accurate. And, you know, it takes me so long and it's very exhausting testing to get it right. And you can't make mistakes because by making mistakes, then you get false information. And doing these tests are, are very important. And that's why we do the tests when I have the time to educate all of you because they are very expensive and very time consuming. Okay, after that, after I do the IR pollution, I then move on to the under and over exposure. And the under and over exposure is a very, very difficult test that takes four hours if you really don't understand how to do it. And it takes me about two hours now because we've gotten it down to a science. But what you're doing is you're selecting an f-stop, and that f-stop doesn't change, but your light value changes. Because what we found is when we first did these under and over exposure tests, I was just opening up the lens or closing down the lens. Now, what you get from that is you don't get something that your eye is seeing that is consistent because the depth of field is changing in the background, and that depth of field can influence your decision on what is holding, what's not holding, what's blowing out, what's too underexposed. So we pick an F-stop, whether it be a 2-2-8 split or something around there. And based on that, based on that F-stop, we then increase the light in half-stop increments. And you go over and then you go under. And you really start to find the soul of that camera. And it's the best test and the most time-consuming, but it really starts to show you where that camera looks good. When we did the Ursa Mini, it looked good at a stop and a half overexposed on uh, the model's face. Not underexposed, not right on exposure, not a half over, not one over, but one and a half over. That's where the camera actually came alive. Well, you would never know that if you didn't do these type of tests and doing them with true accuracy, and again, breaking the camera and bringing it back. So what we did was we brought the camera back every time we went up a stop. So if one and a half stops looked the best, then once we went to two and a half stops, I brought it back to look like one and a half. And then when we went to three and a half over, I brought it back to make it look like one and a half. And we went four and a half over, I brought it back to look like one and a half. And we went five and a half over and I brought it back. You see the whole process here? It has to be very, very exact. And bringing it back, that camera held so nicely in the overexposure. I couldn't believe how good it held. The underexposure, not so much. But the overexposure on the Ursa Mini was pretty impressive. So that's what you learn with the under and overexposure tests. How far you can underexpose the negative and still get it. And you're also finding looks in there, right? Because you might have a dimly lit scene in an alley at night and you just barely want to see the skin tone. Well, you're going to know right then and there at a stop and a half or two or three or four underexposed what you're going to see on that face. And that is the, the, the thing that was really, that really, you know, helps you with the camera and understanding its sensor and its soul is really 
getting in there and seeing when the, the camera breaks down and fails and then seeing if you can kind of make it succeed in the post process. And you come up with very interesting looks by doing this and you really see where, what that camera can do and what it cannot do. The final test is, and then you wanna do that in tungsten light. And sorry, there's one other test. So you wanna do the under and over exposure test in tungsten light, because you wanna see how the camera handles tungsten light as well as daylight, because a lot of these sensors are daylight balanced. And I find that if you just do them in daylight, then you're really not understanding the sensor fully because you're not only gonna be working in daylight, you're gonna be working in under fluorescent lights, you're gonna be working in tungsten lights, you're gonna be working with practicals that are very warm. You, you wanna try and see what it can do in all these different situations. So I tend to do uh, another test, test underneath, after the underexposure, overexposure, is just colored sources, all different colors. I go with tungsten light, I go with a practical source at like 2200, Calvin, I go to cool white fluorescence. So I'm a mixed bag, sodium vapor, uh, street lights, just to see how the sensor responds to those different colors. I mean, take for example, the, the Area Alexa takes a sodium vapor and makes it orange. The C500 takes a sodium vapor and makes it yellow. And a dragon uh, weapon makes it yellow-red. So each sensor reacts differently under these, these different colored sources that we all shoot with. So, you know, you just, again, part of the test is, is real world stuff. You want to put it in these situations where it's real world and you are really getting the most out of this test and and seeing what exactly this camera can and cannot do. So under and over exposure, finding out where it breaks, seeing where in, when you can bring it back, you immediately start to see where the camera looks the best in over or under exposing. Then you go into multiple sources, trying all different color temps with the camera as all different colored sources, practicals, cool white, sodium vapor, metal halide, you know, uh, all these different colors. And then what I do is I do a rolling shutter test. And rolling shutter tests, I, I usually get a car and, uh, and have a car drive by me and I pan with it. And then I hop in a car and I drive down the road and I shoot somebody driving. So I'm in the passenger seat and I am driving down the road where I can pan out the window and see if trees are going kind of at an angle and then pan over to to my actor driving the car and see what is happening in the background, throw focus deep so you can really see if the trees are bending, fence posts are bending, all that kind of stuff, and uh, see you know how bad the rolling shutter is. And then my final test is a night ISO test where I work with sodium vapor and metal halides and all the colors that would happen on a urban environment. And I go through the different ISOs and obviously night ISO, I'm not going to do a 200 or a 400 because I would never be working in those ISOs 
Uh, so with the Ursa Mini, I did 800 and 1600 because that's all they had. But with the weapon, I went from 800 all the way up to, I guess, 4,000 they limited on the weapon now. But with the Dragon, you could go all the way up to 20,000 ISO. And I did all those tests to be able to see what it looked like and, and, and if I could bring it back. So those are all the tests and kind of how I go about it and what I am looking for. Next question. Hello, Shane. I just saw that you tested the Vericam 35 before shooting into the Badlands. Any comments you have for this particular camera? Color science, dynamic range, dual ISO, grading ability, and why you didn't opt to use it in the show and going with the red. I ask this because my production company will be buying a new camera later this year. We'll be upgrading from a C100, and we are between the new Scarlet W and the new Vericam LT, since it uses the same sensor as the 35. We are a small shop and do mostly commercial feature indie work, uh, low budget to even lower budget. We would love if you could give your thoughts on the pros and cons for each of these cameras. Thank you for giving us so much. You are so welcome, and thank you. And, and you can see where this is all headed. I'm doing a little test action in the potpourri. The Vericam is a very interesting camera. I felt that the camera's dual ISO range at 5,000 was impressive. I thought the noise level was absolutely impressive. The color science and color space, I did not like. I felt it looked very video. I thought the colors were slightly unreal. I thought the skin tone was fairly plastic. Yeah, I just, the camera just didn't fly off the shelf and say, oh, I want to shoot with this. Once I saw it side by side, which we did with our Badlands test, we saw it side by side with the red and, and the very cam, uh, the red just killed it. It had, it balanced so much more nicer on day exteriors. I didn't have to light as much, which was a big deal because I knew on the TV show I would be, I would ha have to move very quickly and not light a lot of my day exteriors. I had to go with available light, maybe just shaping it with some neg fill. So I, I really started to see what that camera could do and what it couldn't do. What it could do is shoot night exteriors amazing in urban environments. What it could not do is balance day exteriors. It had plastic skin tones, and it really didn't deliver a cinematic look of what I wanted the Badlands to be. And the Badlands wanted to be extremes. If light was coming through a window, there was shafts of light coming through a window. If there were shadows, it was black. So, and that was the Badlands. I built the world on extremities. Um, and uh, I really needed a camera that could take extremes. Uh, and I found that with the, the Red Dragon and the Red Weapon. And I think your Scarlet W would be an incredible choice for your smaller budget world. Uh, that, that sensor is incredible. Uh, like I said, I shot it all with Badlands. The standard OLPF on that camera is amazing, but also 
get the skin tone. And low light, I never was a big fan of, but skin tone and the standard are really good. The skin tone kind of is softening uh, as well as giving good skin. So it, it diffuses the whole image a little bit so it's not so sharp. The standard is is very sharp and crisp and a much more balanced image. And the color science kind of falls in uh, much more like the Alexa is what I found when I went into the color grading process on this. Okay, next question. Hello, Shane. I would like to know how to properly light a night slash day interior car scene that is being shot in a studio with chroma key. I have trouble lighting this setup to look natural, like it was shot on the road. For nighttime shots, I have trouble making the lights passing by the car from lampposts and outdoors, etc. For the daytime, casting random shadows passing under by trees, signs. Do you have any guidelines for these setups? And since we are in this subject, what lenses do you prefer to use for these situations? Longer, shorter. Thank you for putting so much time and knowledge into this site. You're very welcome. And and we appreciate your kind words and support on all of this. This is a great question. And it's something that I did a ton on the adventures. And I think you saw some of my Instagram posts where I did a lot of stuff with cars and tunnels cars at night, cars a day, all, all these different parameters, and they were all done on blue screen uh, and or green screen. So you can do it either or. I'm a big fan of blue if I'm doing day uh, exteriors because I think the blue is a, is a quality of light and a bounce and uh, that just feels like it's from this planet. And the green is not. So if there's a weird reflection on some chrome and we don't have the time to clean it up, well, it looks like sky. Where if there's green reflected on some chrome, well, it looks like a chroma key green screen. And uh, you get into these situations a ton, especially with shooting car interiors, because the blue is going to be, you know, uh, very pronounced in, you know, very close to the car, or if you have the money, you can get it as far away as possible, which is what we did. We got it as far away as we could. But with that comes a lot more lighting and a lot bigger setups. And uh, so if you're working in kind of a lower budget scenario, that blue is going to have to be fairly close. And by it being fairly close means that it can wrap into the car and reflect on things as well as reflect on people's cheeks and all this stuff where when green reflects on somebody's cheek, it's a chroma key green screen. When blue reflects on somebody's cheek in a day exterior environment, well, that could be the blue sky. So that's why I always go for blue in those day exterior, you know, when you have to cheat it when your car is driving down the road and it's supposed to be day exterior. Okay. Lighting this is very difficult. It's not something that's easy because lighting day exterior car work on a stage in a controlled lighting environment requires light to come from everywhere because that's what's happening when you're driving down the road. The light is everywhere. You see your horizon, you see the sky, you see the bounce off the green, off the road, off the dirt, off the whatever you're driving by, you see it. And 
that light comes into the car. If you see it with your naked eye, then that is what is coming into the vehicle. So you have to then create that light that's coming into the vehicle. Now you can create it with all sorts of types of, you can create it with big bounces that are up above frame and surrounded all around. You can do it with balloons, which is what I chose to do. Uh, HMI balance balloons that I literally encircled the whole car. I had one, you know, big balloon coming through the back window, a big balloon coming through the side windows, a big balloon coming through the front windshield, and a big coming through the other side windows. So a big, you know, rectangle of balloons that literally surrounds the whole car. And you bring them right down to the level where if you're in a profile or looking out of the back of the vehicle, they're right above the frame. So as much as that daylight from the balloons is, is pushing into the car. And then I dim up and dim down the balloons so you get undulating light. If they're going in between buildings or they're going into a dark area, shadow, uh, or, you know, the sun starts to hit and explode, then I bring up the, the uh, balloon's fill level. Then I create moving type of light uh, based on this one thing we created was like a, we called it the Da Vinci flying machine where we used, it was very low tech but looked very high-tech in the final cut. It was C-stand arms that we, we created these helicopter gags that we put black wrap and we cut holes in them, and that created the sunlight because we, need to, we needed to mimic palm trees going down the uh, corset uh, at Cannes. And so I was able to cut palm frond shadows in all the black wrap. And we had a guy literally just spin this rig in front of 18Ks. And it looked like they were flying by the, the palm trees on the corset. So that was active light. I also had these mirror trees that they're like hexagon. So uh, there's a mirror every two or three feet. And uh, we spin these and we blast 4K or uh, M90s or M40s into it. And we rotate those like it's uh, light ricocheting off of... Uh, off of the rear windows or the front windshields of cars or off of the the windows of apartment buildings or office structures, uh, just some moving light that gives that intense speed. And so it's not just the spinning uh, shadows and the undulating fill light that goes up and down. There's also another element that uh, is interjected in it all. And that's what we did for adventures. So we used balloons and circled the whole car. We lit the blue screen with the balloons because they we let the it go everywhere and it lit the blue screen perfectly. So we didn't have to light the blue screen separately. And then uh, we used the uh, Da Vinci flying machine uh, with an 18K for our son. And then we did this spinning mirror tree to be able to create uh, different uh, reflections. And and I diffused that light as well. So it, it uh, would be hard sometimes, and then it would be soft. And so it was a kind of a mixed bag. For night exteriors, there's a couple ways to do that of driving down a road. You can do a 
We did two versions. I did the chasing airy sky panels. So you put sky panels up on like a rock and roll truss over the car and you start one way in the distance and then the next one comes and the next one comes and the next one comes and the next one then it goes all the way to the back of the car and you find a beautiful dim out quality to it where because the cool thing about the airy sky panels when you dim them out they don't change colors they just dim so it feels like the the light is getting further away or as it dims up you know getting closer to the car as it's driving so we found and this really takes a good dimmer board op we found a good recipe where the light was staying up enough and then decaying enough to be able to feel like they were moving down the road and that it felt realistic as the shadows moving uh, in the car. So there's that. A little more low-tech version of it that works like a million bucks, and I've done it on every movie except Adventures, is what we call the helicopter rig. So imagine a high roller or sometimes we use even like a long john silver something that's big and beefy a beefy stand and modern studio equipment has made these helicopter rigs where it's it's a it's a nice bearing that is greased and then it has four inch and a quarter speed rail receivers and you spin that by hand and uh, you put 10 foot to 12 foot sticks because the short the shorter you make the sticks of speed rail the pieces of speed rail the more arc you will have on the car and it looks like the car is going in circles like he's just driving in a circle so by going with the longer 10 foot or 12 foot sticks it makes your helicopter 20 or 24 feet wide and then you spin that and what i do is i put sodium vapor lights on it so it's totally the same color or whatever light you're driving under if you're driving under LEDs then i would make it LEDs if you're driving uh under sodium vapor then you rig sodium vapors to these helicopters if you're going under metal halide then you rig metal halide so i pick whatever color temp i'm going to be driving under the location and to match it and then i mount these things the exact fixtures that are on the street to this helicopter rig and i bring the stingers down from above so it can spin forever well not forever you're going to wind the cables up eventually so you have to unwind them but you can spin for a long amount of time because you're bringing the cables down from above and you just spin this thing and it just looks very realistic it looks like the car is driving down the road and the light is getting brighter and brighter and brighter and then the shadow goes and it takes it out by the windshield and then you see it fly back into the back window and then trail away so this is a a wonderful gag to be able to do and then with uh with headlight gags you know passing car lights i like to use the kino selects or the kino celebs i don't like to go with a vicious hard light because when it's all said and done you know that's going to look pretty evasive in the car if you're using like hard light across them so i use a hot small source so it's only 2 feet 
long and I run with that and then I pan it away. And you have to kind of get past him, right? Because that's what a car would do. It would go past him. And we've gotten even much more creative with this. And we've done it on, on dollies where you see the thing go flying by and you see the headlight go by. And then on the back end of the headlight, we have a tail light. So you not only get the white light going by their faces, you also get the red tail light effect uh, whipping by the interior of the uh, the car and creating like a backlight side light scenario. And then it trails away and then you turn them off and then you suck the dolly back and then you send it again. So this is, you know, really poor man's process style stuff that you can do and uh, creating that environment. And then my secret sauce with doing any of this is creating color contrast. So if you're under sodium vapors, then you do not want to fill with sodium vapor because you want color contrast. So maybe a little cyan green coming from the dashboard or a cold tone or a daylight tone, whatever the dashboard lights are. Again, very minimal, so it's not too powerful. And then there's always, when I'm doing moonlit roads, I always play the ambience coming through the front windshield as, as kind of headlight ambience. So imagine that you're driving down a moonlit road and your headlights are hitting the asphalt and I create a four foot Kino flow. I put it right on the hood and this is the ambience that's coming into the car and I tape it way down. So it's like a strip of light, like a sometimes an inch wide or a half inch wide. And that's filling into the car and creating like this headlight bounce ambience. All right, I've given you all my secret sauce to lighting day and night interior cars. Now go out there and rock it out. All right, last question. Hey, Shane, first off, thank you for creating the inner circle and the lessons and the content you teach are priceless. You're very welcome. My question deals with the DP and director relationship during pre-production or principal photography. I had a situation on a comedy TV pilot where there was a good amount of improv and the writers, directors on certain scenes would make stuff up after seeing the scripted take, then would do another take and maybe make up new blocking or dialogue, etc. Them being good friends, I was comfortable giving certain blocking suggestions that I thought would add to the comedy of the scene. Later, I questioned if that would have been okay on a $20 million feature. I think it depends on the situation, but how do you know when it's okay to make suggestions as a DP and when it's best to ride the wave and go with the flow? Thanks, Shane. This is a great question. And that's why I wanted to end with this. I have to say that the DP director relationship, you will know within the first days of prep how much your director is going to collaborate. And if he or she has a very clear vision of what they want to do, or if they're really open to ideas. I find that once I find, figure that out and I know what they like to do and how they like to roll, 
I then see where I can add my collaboration. So I'm always, whether it's a $20 million, $50 million movie, $100 million, or $200 million movie that I've worked on, I'm making suggestions. I'm uh, working with the director and the actors to see and suggest blocking that not only is going to save us time and keep us on budget, uh, but also look better. And you can immediately feel where if the actor is going to be, you know, open to this, because sometimes you can see just where their character is going in the scene and you're never suggesting that. Like with Russell Crowe, I would see where he was headed in his rehearsals and I was like, ah, Awesome. Okay, good, good, good. All right, I'm going to have to relight that a little bit because I see where he's headed with this. And my instinct of of him going to the desk, well, he's not going to go. He's just going to stand. All right, that's kind of cool. All right, I'll figure. So you, you can see in their performance if they're going to be open to those kind of suggestions. And obviously, you're going to the director first to kind of say, hey, what do you think of this? Would this be cool? There's a lot of there was one really strong moment in Fathers and Daughters where he had just come back from learning that they were suing him for custody of his own daughter. And he was broke. He was he had basically spent all of his money on this lawsuit and his book wasn't selling and the whole world was crashing down and he was having seizures. And the scene was originally like him walking in and throwing stuff around and just being frustrated and all. And, you know, Russell wasn't into that, you know, how it was written, but he was kind of trying to figure out what he really liked. And I'm like, what if we sit you down in at the kitchen and I just bring in this really strong light behind you and we just pull back and we pull back and we pull back and we... We through, you know, we go through the door, we fly over your desk, we see your wife that just died as a picture on the right, we see your daughter, we see all the world that's kind of collapsing down around you as we pull away. And he's like, that's what we're doing. So it's like these kind of suggestions are, are really good. There was another great one in Crazy Beautiful. This was a scene. Uh, and I went into this and in the illumination experience in detail. But there was a scene where Kirsten Dunst had just been thrown out of school. She was going to be going to a, a drug and alcohol rehab center somewhere. And that drug and that drug and alcohol rehab center was taking her very far away. And she needed to pack up all her things. And Carlos, who was slowly falling in love with her. She had already fallen in love with him, but he was not really into her, slowly falling in love with her. He comes into the media room where she's packing up all her photos and prints and all that stuff. And originally the script had it where she was packing up a locker and Carlos went up to her and they had their conversation. And I saw that blocking and I went up to the director and I said, what if she's on her knees? And he goes, well, what does that do? Well, I mean, the minute she's on her knees, she's very fragile. She's broken. And he was like, I love that. And that's how we did the scene. She, you know, he comes in, he finds her and she's on her knees. She's packing up stuff that, you know, 
was on the ground and you know it didn't it really didn't need to 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 uh be realistic i mean she could be packing up stuff that she pulled off a shelf there were shelves that were low in the background or whatever the case may be or pulling it out of a drawer behind this desk whatever that was to justify it but i didn't really need to justify it in my mind i just thought that her being on her knees was much more fragile and much more broken of a statement than her standing at her locker. So these are suggestions you're making, whether the whatever the budget is, and uh, you know you you find that with collaboration, <clears throat> trying to relate it to a comedy on Semi Pro, there were a lot of times when Ken Alterman and I really worked to take Will Ferrell's performance higher cinematically obviously everyone wanted to do these takes that you talked about where they would go in and rewrite the dialogue and do the take again and and you know will ferrell would improv like crazy and it would be funny as hell and everyone would laugh their ass off and it would be great but then you know i said that's great we can do these wide shots we can do all this stuff but what if we really take it a step further and we get all that but then there's a point where we push in and swirl around and move in as he's delivering this kind of dialogue and and it really i think took that comedy higher and if you see that movie semi pro you know it uh it's one of my favorite works that i've ever done uh not only the look but the way the camera feels, the way it delivers the comedic beats, it was very different than what you see most comedies uh, shot like. And I wanted to do it as a test because I didn't want to shoot it like every other comedy is shot. And by doing that, I think we delivered an amazing masterpiece of, of cinematic storytelling as well as something you would laugh your ass off. So it worked. All right. Well, that concludes the November 2016 podcast. I thank you all so much for your questions. We only got through three today, but the test one is a big one. And I think this will really help you all in, in finding the soul of your sensor. Remember, without your questions, we have a no podcast. So continue to go to the area within the inner circle where it has my picture of me and my beautiful wife, Lydia and creator of the inner circle and the hurl blog and uh, be able to submit your questions so we can keep this podcast going and i personally over all the two years over two years that we've been doing this podcast and the inner circle the podcast is the gold of the inner circle because it's that direct connection with me and you and i go into really great depth that sometimes you really can't do in a lesson or on some of the content that we're shooting. And uh, it's really nice to be able to break things down at a personal level with questions that are asked by all of the members, and then I can address them individually. All right. Again, have a wonderful holiday season. And uh, Lydia will be doing the December 2016. So. Adios. 
If you're looking to challenge yourself, if you're looking to become a better filmmaker, as well as being mentored from 30 years of experience, go to shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving global film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.